We're in Isaiah chapter 11 this morning. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And as you turn there, I want to encourage you in a couple of things. Uh, one is that we will be baptizing next week. Uh, we do this periodically here, and it is important. We believe that baptism is related to the command of Christ, that before he ascended into heaven, he called for us to go and make disciples in all the world, and to baptize in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that it's the clear pattern of baptism in the book of Acts, that it comes after we make a profession of faith in Christ Jesus. It was paramount in the early church. It was something that was a part of everything that they did, and we continue on in that path today. We want you to join symbolically in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and to gladly and openly proclaim what Jesus has done in your heart. One other thing I want to mention this morning is that we're about halfway through the year. At the beginning of every year, I talk to you about reading your Bible every day and how important it is to have a plan and to make a plan and try to stick to that plan. And here halfway through the year, as all of our plans are blown, I want to encourage you to get back on track and understand how important it is that you read your Bible every day. And that it's not just reading your Bible. It is meeting with the Lord. It's making time to be with the Lord. It's taking hold of your crazy busy schedule and making time for Jesus. Not reading a book about the Lord, but sitting down and prayerfully asking, Jesus, speak to me through your word today. I need your truth. I need your wisdom. I need you to meet me here now and teach me who you are through your word. And the Lord will do that. He will meet you every day when you open his word and read up from it. I encourage you to do the same thing that we do here, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You don't read any other book by going from chapter 1 to chapter 13 and back to chapter 2 and then to the end and then to the beginning and all over the place. The book wouldn't make any sense and neither will the Bible. But if you'll read it chapter by chapter and verse by verse, the Lord will minister to your heart in ways that you cannot understand. So I encourage you in those two things this morning. Let's stand together to read from Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 9. Uh, we have been going, as I said last week, and, and back and forth in these themes in Isaiah. And last week was one of the heavy themes of judgment. And we're here back to the great hope of salvation yet to come for Israel and then again yet to come for us in the future. Verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteous shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. 
They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Isaiah has so many of these passages that you're like, man, I've heard that passage before. And they, so many of them come from the book of Isaiah. It's part of why we're going through this book and taking time with it. Well, the first verse it is do some explanation. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. We all know what stumps are. We've all cut down trees and said, oh man, what am I going to do with this stump? Like I can't get this thing out of the ground. It's dead. And I wanted to get rid of it, but I'm not really rid of it. And so now I have to go either pay somebody a bunch of money to shred this thing up or, or have a huge amount of work to go dig this thing out of the yard. Well, there was a stump here in the Bible. And what is this stump referring to? It's the stump of Jesse. If we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 16, we get an understanding of who Jesse is. In 1 Samuel 16, it says this, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Saul was the first king of Israel, and he was a godless king. And for his repeated godlessness, he was rejected by the Lord, and the Lord brought in another king. He says to Samuel, who is the prophet of that time, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So who was the king among the sons of Jesse? It was David. David was the youngest of eight brothers. He was a shepherd. The scriptures tell us that he was handsome with beautiful eyes, but the most important part about David is that he had a passion for the Lord. He was bold in his godliness. He was the one who went out and led the people to follow after the Lord when Saul would not. And the Lord chose him out for this duty, but he was of the sons of Jesse. And so what happens here is there is a covenant promise made to David, ultimately. Because David does not go straight from this time of anointing in 1 Samuel chapter 16, straight to the king, kingdom, or being king. Instead, what happens is there are years and years of wandering, difficult, difficult wanderings. He's all out in the wilderness being chased unto death by Saul, living in caves, living in the mountains, ultimately having to flee his own country and live with his enemies in order for his life to be preserved. But eventually the Lord keeps his promise and brings him into his kingship. And after there's much war and struggle and tumult, he comes into a place of peace where finally his enemies are conquered. And he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, the capital city, and says, I feel led to build a permanent place for this Ark of the Covenant that the Lord might be worshipped here in this established capital city. Because there had always been a tabernacle, a moving place, a tent of worship for the Lord. Well, uh, there's plenty that could be said about that. But after he makes this decision and is in this place, the Lord comes to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and says something very important through the prophet Nathan. It's here. This says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you, that's David, from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. 
and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your, sh your throne shall be established forever. And so it's a promise to David that is shocking. And he goes in and, and gives thanks to the Lord and, and like, who am I that I should be promised such things? But David really doesn't understand, how is this possible? How could an earthly throne, no king has ever had a throne that lasted forever? And so how is this going to happen? And it becomes confusing to the people of Israel as well because David's son Solomon is the next king to rule, but after him the kingdom is divided and David's house is not truly fully in power anymore and it goes on until Judah falls to Babylon and the people are exiled and truly there is no earthly throne of David at all anymore. So how is it that the promises of God are coming to pass when it does not look like they are coming to pass? Instead, the throne of David or the house of Jesse looks like a stump cut off. A tree that was once great and strong and now it's this remnant sitting here on the ground that is no more without life. But it is one of the great consistent themes of the Bible that you and I must continue to remember in our day that we must not judge God's purposes of faithfulness by outward appearance. Let me say that again. We must not judge God's purposes of faithfulness by outward appearance. Over and over and over in the Old Testament, promises that God makes and purposes that he have seems to be coming to no end. God's plans are not like our plans. Our plans are basically things that we want to do, things that we hope to do, aspirations that we have. We are doing this next year. But we're warned in the New Testament to say, after every time we say, I'm doing this next year, to say what? If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Because there's not a single one of us to have any idea what's even going to happen this afternoon when we go home. Our time is limited, our resources are limited, our power, our understanding, everything about us is limited. And so we always say, if the Lord wills, because God knows the beginning from the end. He has exact purposes that he is working out in the world, and he is not bound by time. 
He is not bound by time. All, he is all-powerful. He is causing his purposes to come to pass. I want you to understand that. God is not hoping for his purposes to come to pass. He is not trying to get his purposes to come to pass. He is causing his will to be done, and his will is always done. That's why we pray, as we sang here this morning, not my will, but yours be done. Because we want to submit to the will of the Lord, which is good and right and will lead us into his purposes. God has exact purposes that he is working out. He is not bound by time or limited resources or limited limitations of any sort. And it is so important for us to understand that nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. In fact, the Lord works in such ways where things get to a place where they seem impossible. Which means we know that if the Lord is going to accomplish something, it did not come about through our purposes or through our strength. God loves to have it in that impossible place so that he can then bring it to pass. And we say that must have been of the Lord. It has to have been of the Lord because there's no way we could have accomplished this. And so in this promise of David, this cut off stump of Jesse, where it seems like the kingdom of David is so long ago, we have to study the Old Testament. We have to grasp how many hundreds and even thousands of years are passing between promises made and promises kept. When this shoot of Jesse comes up out of this stump, which is being prophesied by Isaiah, and remember, the prophecy of uh, or the promise, the covenant promise that God is going to have an eternal throne of David is made. And then there is Isaiah saying, from this root of Jesse, there's going to be a Messiah that's going to come. And then later, we actually have this come to pass. But the place in which it comes to pass is when the nation itself is occupied by Romans and in a terrible low place of despair and so far away from these promises that countless numbers have given up that they're ever going to be fulfilled. But I think the most important genealogy in all the Bible is the first chapter of Matthew, which you start off, you're like, yes, I'm going to read something about Jesus in the Gospels. And you start out and there's a whole chapter of so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. And you're like, man, what in the world is this? It's there to show us the fulfillment of this promise. Because what it is, is ch uh, chapter 1 of Matthew, verses 2 through 6, traces Abraham to David. And then it traces David to the Babylonian exile and the heritage of David, David through the Babylonian exile to Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. And that Jesus is, in fact, in the lineage of David. That he is this, this sprout, this this branch, this shoot coming forth from the stump of Jesse. Jesse so long ago, 28 generations ago, just because the Lord is amazing, it's fascinating. There's 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to Babylon, and 14 generations from Babylon to Joseph, uh, just because the Lord likes to do things like that. But he is in the direct lineage of Jesse. And so he is the fulfillment of this prophetic word. From the stump of David's fallen kingdom comes the never-ending ministry of Jesus. From the stump of David's kingdom comes the kingdom of God, a kingdom that will truly never end, a kingdom that will carry on into eternity in Christ Jesus our Lord as the king of that kingdom. 
It's important also to look at Isaiah chapter 53, one of the most important chapters in Isaiah. It'll be a long time before we get there, but it has the most detail about the Messiah and the way that he comes. And it's important to note that the the first verses of Isaiah chapter 53 are are very similar to what we see here in Isaiah 11.1. Isaiah 53 says this, Who has believed what has been heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. It describes the coming of the Messiah like a young plant coming up out of dry ground. We don't, we don't plant plants in dry, hard ground. We don't expect anything to grow from there. But out of the hard, dry ground of the people of Israel of that time comes the Messiah. Unexpected. Unexpected on their part, but promised by covenant and upheld by the Lord our God. And so it is a promise made and a promise kept. What we're going to see over and over and over in the Old Testament is the pattern of promises made, long delays, promises kept. This is so important for us in the New Testament because there are many promises made to us. And it is of the greatest importance that we see the promise made and that because of God making promises and keeping promises in the past that we believe by faith that he can make promises and keep them in our future as well. So as we go on and Isaiah describes this shoot that's going to come forth, this this Messiah, It says that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might, and it goes on and on. This is exactly what we see in the coming of Christ Jesus. This is fulfilled at the very, very beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. Matthew, and again, the the book of Matthew is all about pointing out to us the fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament. He's constantly pointing these things out. And so in Matthew chapter 3, at the baptism of Jesus, which is sort of the kickoff of the public ministry of Jesus, the very first thing that we see is the filling and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So as soon as the public ministry of Jesus begins, the Spirit of the Lord descends upon him. And this is mysterious. For in this passage, we have God the Father speaking, God the Son in the water, and the Holy Spirit coming down upon him. We know from the scriptures we have one God, three persons, lots of mystery here. But the power of the Holy Spirit is upon him, just as Isaiah said that it would be. The ministry of the Messiah is characterized by all the things that are mentioned here in verses 2 through 5. Wisdom, counsel, knowledge, faithfulness, understanding, might, righteousness. All these things are a part of the ministry of Jesus for this is what he brought to us. For the people in rebellious ancient Judah, this forward-looking prophecy was to give hope. 
The people that Isaiah spoke these things to on behalf of the Lord, this was meant to give them hope. They were in a low place. The nation was not where they hoped that it would be. They themselves were of a hard and rebellious heart. And he spoke these things to them to say that it will not always be this way. There will be a Messiah that comes. This process that is going on in the temple that is symbolic will not always be symbolic. It will one day be fulfilled and it will be made true and full and whole. He speaks many times to the people of judgment and of exile. But then he'll alternate back and forth, speaking of restoration, speaking of a Messiah, speaking of a Savior to come. It is a forward-looking hope based on promise. And one of the things I want you to see this morning is that our hope in the Lord Jesus is the same. It's a forward-looking hope based on promise. The people of the Lord, those who have come to salvation, have always come to salvation in the same way, by faith and hoping in the promises of the Lord who accomplishes our salvation. And I want you to see that this promise did not fail. For the people and the audience of Isaiah, this was a future promise. We're in the privileged place of the fact that these promises have been kept. And we can now go back and read about them in the Gospels and see, yes, look at this, look at this one-to-one. Look at how this worked out. This is so great. But you need to understand there was a huge audience back here that that had not happened yet. For them, it was in the future. For us, it is in the past. And that is very important. The promise did not fail. It came at the appointed time of the Lord. A dark time of national occupation and hopelessness. A spring, a shoot did in fact spring forth from the stump of David's kingdom, Jesus our Lord. In verses 6 through 9, there is a shift. It shifts for them, for this audience of Isaiah, it was all future. For us, what we have spoken of in verses 1 through 5 is now in the past. But verses 6 through 9 for us, is still in the future. And it is by faith that we believe that this will happen in the future. And that we look back at what I just said, that the purposes of the Lord are not hopeful. The purposes of the Lord are not something that he just may work out. But they are promises that will, in fact, come to pass exactly as he has said that they will. And so in verses 6 through 9, we are looking to our future a future promise that is meant to give us hope. It is a promise that we must believe by faith. It is a promise that is related to heaven and a final hope. For us, we are living in the last chapter of church history. I love church history. If you've never read much about church history, it takes us from the Old Testament and the book of Acts to where we are now. And there's lots of chapters in the work of the Lord in the world, and most of those chapters are behind us. You and I live in the last chapters of God's purposes in this world. And the next and final chapter will be the coming of Christ Jesus. And the final state, hope, which is our eternal hope. And what will that hope look like? I know that it's impossible to escape the news these days. Sometimes we just turn it off because we just don't want to hear the news. But when you turn the news on, the news is disturbing. And it's always been that way, folks. Uh, Just let me remind you of that. Filled with struggle and fear and corruption. Wars and rumors of wars and economic uncertainty and political rancor and moral decline. The great 
sadness really of our day and age is with this information age where everything is just getting blasted to you at all the time. You get the great joy of hearing about all the terrible things in the world all the time, every day. There's no delay and you just get it pumped straight to your phone and it notifies you incessantly of every horrible thing that's happening in the world continuously. And that is not good for anybody's heart. But it's also not good to just say, you know, I'm just not going to listen to any of this. I'm just going to pretend like nothing's happening. That's not truthful because really what we're seeing is this is how bad the world really is. Maybe for the first time in the world, we, we really realize how bad things are in the world. And it, it causes you to lose hope to say, man, things are so horrible. Like, are we going to be able to hang on for much longer? Is the world just going to implode on itself? We need to read and hear verses like this from so long ago because you can lose all hope by watching the news all the time. Hope, you will not find hope from watching the news. If you think you're going to find hope from watching the news, you're going to be sadly disappointed. Hope comes from somewhere else. And I'm telling you this morning that our ultimate hope comes from what we've been talking about here this morning, that the Lord God has purposes of redemption and that he by his power and by his strength will accomplish these purposes of redemption. And that when we come into the salvation of Jesus Christ, we get into the stream of what he is doing and we are carried along towards the ends that he is working out for those who love his name. Where do you look for hope? You may be here this morning in a, in a great low place of despair. And if you are, you have to ask, where, do I, where am I supposed to look for hope? The scriptures constantly tell us, one of the greatest passages is Psalm 121. Uh, where do I look for hope? I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my hope come from? It comes from the maker of heaven and earth. It comes from the Lord. We look to the promises of God and we know that they will in fact come to pass. And part of how we are encouraged that the future promises of God will come to pass is by looking how the past promises of God have in fact been fulfilled. And so what we see in verses six through nine is a future time. The wolf lying down with the lamb, a leopard lying down with a young goat, a fattened calf with a lion. Well, the last one's like a fattened calf with a lion. You're like, that's man, that's that's a lion's, you know, that's the easy day. Like there's the fattened calf walking by. I got that one. I can do that. But here they lie down together at peace. And it is a picture of predator and prey being at peace together. It's something that is otherworldly. It's something that is unnatural in a way. And that they will be led by what? By a child. A child will lead them. Next is a cow and the bear grazing together. Yes, bears like to eat honey and berries. But if you've ever hiked in forests where you know there's bears, it's always on your mind. And you've always got the plan for hopefully what you're going to do if this big thing trundles out in front of you. Even though you know you can't outrun it and you know you can't outpower it, you're like something good's got to happen because I really want to walk down this trail. Bears are terrifying. They are huge and incredibly powerful. Cows are not. When you see cows and you walk by them, there's no terror. There's no plan for how am I going to run away. Like you don't bring cow spray to hit a cow so that it doesn't bite you. But these two in a scene of peace, a lion eating straw like an ox, 
a nursing child playing with a cobra. I mean, this is what, only the scriptures can bring together the worst possible scenario. No, no, any parent letting their child play with a poisonous snake is just a horrible scenario. A weaned child with an adder. What do we have here? We have a change of nature of dangerous animals. You're like, wow, how is that possible? You know, how is it that the nature of something can change? It should not surprise us at all that God is in the business of changing natures. Why is that? Because he's changed your nature and he's changed my nature. When you come to know Christ as Savior, your nature is changed. It's a part of the process that the Lord God brings new birth to your life and that you who were a, by nature, it says a child of wrath, your heart was corrupt and you loved and longed for the things of this world. And you say, how is it possible? Every one of us know people that we pray for and long to see come to know Christ, but their nature is deeply sinful and they love the things of this world. They are passionate about the things of this world. And you say, how can I change their heart? That's why we pray for them. Because we're asking for God to do something to change their nature. And when a person comes to salvation, they are changed. They do away with the things of the world. They no longer love the things of the world. And they love the things of Jesus. And their nature is changed. And they go on to become, what the scriptures say, a new creation. This is what the Lord does. This is in a natural setting. But something about heaven, as it keeps going... There's going to be a change of nature in the new earth and the new heavens to come. And there is going to be no violence. There's going to be no violence between people. And as, it's, as, it, as we get a little window into here, there's going to be no violence in heaven because there's going to be no death in heaven. And if there is no death in heaven, which there, there will not be, there will only be life, there has, this has to be true. There has to be something that God changes as it says in verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Which speaks to this holy place yet to come. No violence in heaven. It's really important. There's a lot of us in this congregation that are related to either uh, law enforcement or the military. All of those things relate to violence. They relate to wars. They relate to struggle and the holding back of struggle. And it is so important to understand that all of us that are in those roles will be out of a job in heaven because there's not going to be any police force in heaven and there's not going to be any military in heaven because Jesus is the prince of peace and he will do away with all violence and there will only be tranquility. There will be no death in this holy place, only perfect peace. And in the peace of heaven... The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Right now, the knowledge of the Lord is suppressed. So many people don't want to hear a thing about the Lord. And if you bring up something about the Lord, they're not interested in talking about it. And they will quiet you. And there's this, this inhibition that we all have of saying something about the Lord to people that don't want to hear about it. But in that day, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord and the awareness of who God is and what he is doing will be shown upon us in a way that we do not experience right now. We see as in a, in a, as in a, a dark mirror now, but we will see face to face then. There will be a pervasive understanding of the reality of the Lord, which will fill the new earth instead of wars and death and rancor and striving and depravity and violence and struggle. 
I will say briefly that many people connect this passage together with Romans chapter 20. Romans chapter 20 verses 1 through 7 is the, is the passage that relates to a millennial reign. I'm not, I'm not going to get into that this morning. But it's very clear there's going to be some period of time that's very different than now, but not seemingly not quite the final eternal state. And it's, it's unclear what is going on there, but it's something that this could fit with. But I also believe this just fits in general with the idea of a new earth. And the, the scriptures have various things that people in their understanding of them put the pieces together in different ways, but the pieces are all there. The pieces of tribulation, of the second coming of Christ bodily, of a thousand year reign, of a final judgment, of the eternal state, of a, of a new heaven and a new earth. And however you put these things together in Bible study, what I want you to see is that there will one day be a final state. It is coming. Jesus will come again. And there will be a state like this that those who know Christ as their Savior will live in. And this is the hope of all who trust in Christ Jesus, the glorious fulfilling of the coming of the Lord. And those of you who have been in this church have heard me say many times, I think the second coming of Christ will be very similar to the first coming of Christ. That people had many different aspects of this mosaic, but they couldn't put all the pieces together until when? until after he rose from the dead. And over and over it says, after he rose from the dead, we realize this, we realize that, we realize the other thing. And it's going to be the same with the second coming of Christ. It will be after he returns that we put all the pieces together and figure out and see in retrospect what has happened. But it is not yet here. And so we live in the interim period between promise and fulfillment of promise. And it is meant to fill us with hope as we continue on in this life, as we go to work tomorrow morning, and as we carry on with the struggles that are before us each day. And the final part of the sermon this morning, I would like to share with you the prayer of Jesus, part of the prayer of Jesus. John chapter 17 is a beautiful prayer of Jesus. And part of the way he prays is for us in this interim period. When we have a promise from the Lord of a future to come, but it has not yet been fulfilled. And the Lord Jesus is very clear that it is not by mistake that he has left us here on this earth to accomplish his will. He says this in John chapter 17, verse 15 and following. I do not ask, this is Jesus praying to God the Father. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. There are four basic things here quickly that, that come from this. We are in the world, yet we are kept from evil by Jesus. This is very important. If you're a follower of Christ, you're in the world but you're not of the world. You don't love the things of the world anymore. Your nature has been changed and you're living in a different way and you are protected by Jesus on this journey. Second, we are not of the world, just like Jesus was not of the world. You say, that's, that's weird, I don't understand that. I'm definitely of the world. 
not according to the scriptures. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you are adopted into the family of the Lord God, you are given an inheritance in heaven. And it says that your citizenship in uh, Philippians chapter three has been transferred from this world to heaven. And you're like an expat. If you've ever been to another country and you find an expatriate community, that means a community of people that are from another country but live in a foreign country. That's how you are. We're, we're an expat community. We belong in heaven. Our citizenship is there, but we will continue living in this world until the Lord takes us home. And we are set apart from the world by the truth of Scripture to hear, believe, and live according to the word of God. And fourthly, that we are sent into the world. We are sent by God into the world to bear witness of his gospel, that there is hope for the forgiveness of sins, that there is grace, that there can be life eternal through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are living on mission to share what Jesus has done for us. There's a phrase, a little, little thing that I, I first heard a long time ago and it's been with me since my late teens from Stephen Alford, a great Welsh pastor. He says this, only one life and it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I'm very mindful of the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm over halfway through my life now. So there's less on this side than there was on this side. And so I can tell clearly the things that I've done for Christ are the things that are really mattered. So many of the other things are interesting, and there's some good stories that come from that, but they're not the things that last. And so there is only one life, and it will soon be passed. What's done for Christ will last. And so I encourage you to be hopeful in your life. Don't allow the things of this world to drag you down and cause you to lose a hope of heaven and peace and eternal life that is coming yet in Christ Jesus. And that you would remember, as it says in Colossians chapter 3, for those who are in Christ, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray.